Electric Friends, a Gary Newman podcast celebrating the tracks by a musical pioneer. chart-topping third solo album Dance in 1981, Gary decided to only release one single from the LP. Uh, The reason for this was perhaps because there weren't many obvious singles from the album. Despite the album's title, it wasn't exactly the most radio-friendly albums, Uh, and while it works brilliantly as an experience from start to finish, there was arguably only one song that would work on the radio as a standalone track, and it was a song that signified a clear switch-up in style for the former Android-like performer, and that song in question was... She's Got Claws, which will be the subject of this latest episode of Electric Friends. So before She's Got Claws uh, came the single from July 1981 called Stormtrooper in Drag, uh, the subject of a future episode, released under the name of his friend and bass player Paul Gardner, but co-written and sung by Newman, and this gave fans a taste of Gary's new sound. It was quite far removed from the science fiction influenced synth pop that had made Gary Newman a household name. But just a month later, Gary released the lead single of his forthcoming album, Dance, in the shape of She's Got Claws. And it must have come as quite a surprise for Newman fans at the time, with uh, Gary taking on a jazz inspired sound. And while his synths and moody atmosphere was still there, it was still quite the departure. Just like you're bad at home. Here on the ground, on the floor, screaming, nothing at all. 
She's Got Claws was a bit of a slow burner for me. I had heard it many times as it featured on various best of compilations I'd had as a kid and it was never one of my favourites necessarily but however over the years it has slowly crept up my uh, personal charts of Gary tracks and there's something special about it. It bridges the gap nicely between Gary's machine era from before to the kind of music he'd go on to produce for the rest of the 80s and uh, by bringing the saxophone to the front and upgrading the bass guitar and keeping his traditional synths it creates this sound that feels way ahead of its time and and sounds totally different to what his uh, contemporaries were doing in 1981. And I particularly love the sound of the synths around the 2 minute 30 mark where they they almost sound like whale song, it's um, it's hypnotising. Much like how he would use the bass guitar as the lead instrument on songs like Music for Chameleons, uh, She's Got Claws did the same by utilising the saxophone as lead instrument rather than just for the, say, a stylish solo. The sax here was played by Mick Khan from the band Japan, who also contributed bass on the track. Uh, Gary was a great fan of Japan's 1980 album Gentlemen Take Polaroids, and this influenced him to adopt this new musical style. Gary had quite a strangely mean-spirited experience, shall we say, with the band Japan around the time of Mick Khan's involvement. And writing Revolution, Gary explained the full story. I got to know the band Japan a little during the year. Their publicist had brought them along to a few of the Teletour gigs, and in turn, I'd become quite a fan of their music. Towards the end of 1980, their bass player Mick Khan came to the studio and played fretless bass on some of the new songs I was working on. Rob Dean, their guitarist, played on one or two as well. At some point, and I can't remember which one of them made it, I was invited to join them as a guest on their next Japanese tour, which was soon to start. It was a fairly loose arrangement, but I flew out to Tokyo and waited. They were supposed to call me when they arrived for us all to meet up. I didn't hear anything, and I was soon on a wild goose chase to catch up with them. It was only when I watched their show from the side of the stage that night that it finally dawned on me that my guest spot wasn't going to happen. When it was over, they came off, walked straight past me and headed off into the night. Maybe I had it wrong and hadn't really been invited. And maybe they'd gone off the idea of me guesting with them and no one had the courage to tell me. But either way, I had got all the way to Japan and was following them around all day like a brainless puppy Yet no one said anything. I was disappointed. Gary goes on to explain how Queen and Freddie Mercury picked him up and gave him a lovely experience on the rest of that trip, and maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode. Uh, elsewhere, Gary performed the SCI Prophet 5, Roland Jupiter 4, ARP Odyssey, Roland CR78 and piano on the album. And on, the, on this track, Cedric Sharpley was on drums, Chris Payne on viola, and uh, Gary's brother John Webb on hand claps. And like much of the dance album, the song was inspired by the betrayal of a former lover of Gary's. According to him, there was this little incident in February 
story that involved one particular person who thought she could make an awful lot of money out of saying what it was like to be with me for six months. You don't expect that. I was all set for, you know, the ring, the lot. Then it turns around and hits you like an atom bomb. And elaborating on the relationship, or at least a relationship that inspired dance as a whole in his Praying to the Aliens book, Gary said, The subject matter of the new songs was full of reflections of the past two years, but one or two in particular were inspired by a relationship which turned very bitter. In 1980, I had gone out with a particular girl for a few months. She gave me three different names while I was with her, so to this day I'm still not sure what her real name was, but the one she ended up with was Debbie Doran. She was older than me, extremely worldly and stunningly good-looking. Everyone told me she was bad news and to keep well away from her, but I didn't listen. As far as I was concerned, it was all sweet and wonderful. I used to tuck her kid into bed at night, everything seemed cool to me. Not only that, she was teaching me stuff in bed that I couldn't believe. On the other hand, she used to wind me up very badly. She knew how to press all the right buttons and spark off my temper, and while I screamed and ranted and broke things, she wrote it all down. Then she tried to blackmail me. She said she'd send her story to the papers unless I paid her more than they were. I was angry, but I was also heartbroken since I thought the world of her. It turned out that everything about the relationship had been set up. It had been arranged that she and her sister would be sitting near me in a club one night. It was a safe bet that I would fancy one of them. Whoever it was would make it easy for me, start a relationship if possible, get some gory details and release it. I have to admit it was a good, if rather cold, plan. Fortunately, the record company got wind of this, and it turned out someone at the label, whom I began to see in a new light, had something on Debbie's brother, a small-time villain. Whatever it was, she withdrew her threat, and I never heard from her again. She certainly hung out with some very shady people. Her friends looked like modern-day gangsters. We go to a club, and these heavy-looking people in sharp suits all knew her. They were very scary people, and I wasn't thinking straight at all. It was a learning experience, to say the least. For the first time, I realised I'd become a ticket to money for some people. They will use you, lie to you, sleep with you just to get money out of you. It took me a long time to get over the experience. She's Got Claws is perhaps best known for its music video, one of Gary's most extravagant uh, ones. Filmed at Southam Zoo in Warwickshire, it uh, used the literal idea of a predatory woman, perhaps inspired by that woman he just talked about, by showing Gary on the run from a panther. In scenes that you could say predated the remake of the Cat People film, released the following year and featured the theme song by David Bowie. See these think you were ready, but you are. I knew it when I saw you with him. Your whole body burns. I'm not like you! You tell yourself that it's love, but it isn't. It's blood. Death. Praying to the Aliens book, he explained about uh, a bit of a tough experience on getting to the video. In August, I flew a Jet Ranger, which is a quite a big roasty machine, to Southam for the filming of the video for my next single, She's Got Claws. It was my first trip in the Jet Ranger since getting the license. 
We were filming in a miniature safari park, so the owner said, had a big field that we could use to land the helicopter. I arrived at the park and was setting the helicopter down in an adjacent field when a horse came galloping out of nowhere and started running wildly around. It was impossible to land in the field, so I pulled away and went back to the safari park. I saw the owner running around, pointing to his postage stamp-sized lawn next to the tiger's cage, the famous SOTV commercial tiger no less. This lawn was the big field he'd been talking about. Not only was it quite small, but it wasn't even flat. The surface was very similar to a corrugated piece of roofing, and I had to land the helicopter evenly between two turf rises. It was a high-skid version, which made it even worse. Due to the cost of the film crew, I allowed myself to be pressured into the landing, which was a poor decision. Luckily, I actually made a good job of it. But what I should have done was go home and come back in the car. It was a cool way to arrive though, and going home the next morning was fun. At one point, I wanted to make sure that I was in the right place, so I hovered the helicopter down beside a sleepy little railway station, checked the name, and flew on. Julian Temple directed the She's Got Claws promo. I think he was a bit disappointed in me because he was looking for a very actor-like performance and I was still rather inhibited. He wanted me to act out various scenes but I felt extremely self-conscious and really couldn't get it together. That's probably why the woman and the panther featured in it more than I did. The video starred actress Sheila Ming who also appeared in the video for Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf. The overall look of Gary for the She's Got Claws video and dance artwork as a whole, including the trilby hat and three-piece suit, was partly based on a ghostly experience he had on the London Underground a few years previously. Explaining in his Revolution book, Gary said, I made irregular trips into London, usually with Gary Robson, to hang out in music shops mostly, look at gear, buy tickets for shows, that sort of thing. On one trip, we had a scare that has stayed with us our entire lives. We always travelled on the underground as we were still too young to drive. A bus to Hounslow and the Piccadilly Line train from there into London. Usually we'd get off at Piccadilly Circus and spend the day walking up and down Shaftesbury Avenue and around that general area. As a rule, the front and rear carriages of those trains tended to have fewer people on them, so that's where we'd aim for. One day we'd done just that. So as we got off at Piccadilly and started to make our long way up to the street exit, we were two of the last in that stream of passengers. As usual, we were excited and chatting to each other intently about teenager things, not really taking much notice of the people around us, just following the people ahead. I was aware of a group of girls behind us who seemed to be the last people off the train. The bulk of the passengers were up ahead and there was an old man directly in front of us. Everything was normal. There was nothing at all to indicate something strange was about to happen. No creeping coldness, no hair standing up on the back of your neck, nothing. As we reached the top of a long escalator, the old man in front, who I was vaguely aware was dressed with more than a hint of the 1940s about him, including a hat, turned left. Gary and I turned left, still thinking we were following the flow of passengers from our train. But no, within a few feet, 10 at the most, we came hard up against a wall. No way through, no old man. For a moment, I was startled, and my attention was now fully on what had happened to that man. I turned to Gary and said, Were you following the old man in a grey coat? Yes, he said. Where did he go? In the few seconds it had taken us to turn, stop and talk, the group of girls behind us had got off the escalator, turned right, and were now out of sight and we were suddenly quite alone and terrified. Without a word, we ran and didn't stop running until we burst out of the station into the daylight and noise of Piccadilly Circus. 
And discussing the general look of the single and album's image, Gary said in Praying to the Aliens, On the sleeve, I unveiled a new 1930s gangster-style image. I decided to kill off the black image at Wembley. The new look was actually on the cover of the Replicas album back in 1979. There was a grey man outside the window, dressed in a jewellery and long grey overcoat. I love the ambience of the old Sinatra and Bogart films, and I thought the 1930s were visually a really cool era. It was the last age where everyday men looked stylish just going to work. However, the atmosphere I was trying to create with the image and some of the music was mostly rooted in an imaginary 1930s. For years, I'd had these pictures in my mind, newspapers rustling through wet, empty streets, everything slightly vague and mostly grey, little colour. The style of the architecture was American, with fire escapes and old street lamps, but it wasn't necessarily in the past more timeless. There were no cars and the buildings were always empty and derelict, apart from a few half-guessed at perversions in upstairs apartments. The dance image, unbeknownst to me at the time, had a strange connection with a recurring nightmare my mother had since she was very young, which involved grey men. A man dressed in a long grey overcoat and true was always lurking underneath a lamppost, half lit in the darkness. She was shocked when she saw the replicas cover because it was her childhood bogeyman and she'd never mentioned it to me. The dance image was that dream made flesh, so it made her quite uncomfortable for a while. It also reminded me of the ghost I'd seen in Piccadilly Circus. And referring to release of She's Got Claws and Revolution, Gary said, The Claws single came out at the end of August and reached number six in the charts. This was the first time I'd let people see the new style something quite different to the black-clad images I'd had before, although not a million miles away from the grey-suited figure on the Pleasure Principle sleeve. This one was far more like the ghost I'd seen on the underground, but with makeup, scratches down my face, and a gold and pearl brooch that I bought for my nan in Tokyo and borrowed back. I'd actually used him even before the Pleasure Principle. I put the grey man standing against the wall of the park as I was looking out of the window on the replicas cover. Very weirdly, that man isn't always there anymore. I've signed lots of replica sleeves in recent years where you can barely see him, if at all, and others where he's clearly visible. I think it depends on when or where the sleeve was manufactured. Perhaps the original artwork is fading and the grey man is becoming harder to see. Strange that a picture of the ghost I saw is fading away. So, She's Got Claws was the only single from the dance album, reaching number six in the UK singles chart. Uh, prior to its release, it was played on Newman's Teletour and recorded at his 1981 Wembley concert for his uh, for the video Micro Music, the soundtrack of which was released later as Living Ornaments 81. He said of the album's chart placement in Praying to the Aliens, Dance charted at number three in September 81. It sold just over 60,000, a far cry from Telecon and light years away from Replicas and the Pleasure Principle. Although experimental and atmospheric, commercially speaking, Dance was the wrong album at a time where I badly needed to pick up momentum. However, I had things to sort out in my head. Where Telecon had been dark and oppressively inward-looking, angry and lashing out, Dance was haunting and full of sadness. It had much of how I felt in the aftermath of Wembley running through it. I thought I was taking a brave, more personal direction after the oppressiveness of Telecon. And curiously, according to Paul Goodwin's excellent Electric Pioneer book, some mispressed British copies of the 7-inch single actually played a single by Dollar, uh, handheld in black and white. I can't imagine the uh, shock and confusion to Numenoids who played that at the time. Uh, the single's B-side was the abstract track called I Sing Rain, quite a polarising track it seems, whose, uh, the vocal of which is largely just of the word rain over and over again, as well as other wordless cries. Um, I sort of quite like this, um, weirdly. I didn't realise it was a B-side of uh, She's Got Claws for a long time, but I don't mind it. It's all, it's all right. 
Uh, an additional B-side was released on the 12-inch single, uh, the track Exhibition. And I've got to say, I somehow missed this song for a long time, but it's a really great song, perhaps one of the two or three best of this dance era. And yeah, it was only a B-side. Um, a lot of you mentioned in your comments, actually, about how much you loved the track, so maybe it'll get its own episode one day. was covered by Posh, not that one, um, on the Newman tribute album Random in remixed version appeared on the collection The Mix in 1998. So, like last time, uh, when we talked about Heart, um, a bit of a mixed bag when it came to your thoughts and feelings about the song. Several people mentioned first hearing it at Wembley in 81 with a mixed reaction. Um, but here's a few highlights of your comments so on Facebook. Uh, Mike Coopy said, I like the song when it was released. I ran to town on a Saturday to buy the 7-inch, met up with my mates after and showed them the record and one of them turned it upside down and the vinyl fell out and chipped the corner of it. I still have it and I still have my friends too. Um, Frederick Kielberg said, Mick Khan's fretless bass dominates the sound it sounds like a dark sinister version of Japan and that continued throughout Dance and I Assassin I started to listen to Gary as late as 1985 and She's Got Claws was one of the first songs I heard just because they had the single at my local record store I was a huge fan of new romantics and synth pop since 81 but most of my early heroes had lost their style by 85 when I discovered Newman, I found a treasure of unheard electronic music. I Assassin was the first album by Gary I bought in September 85, then I got Dance for Christmas. By 88, I had a complete collection. I've followed him ever since. Now I spend my free time illustrating his songs, and you can see my pictures on Instagram, Complex Replicas. There you go, a little shout out for you, Frederick. And he also says thanks for the brilliant podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, Steve Hamilton said it was the weakest track on the best album. <laughs> not a massive fan of his, any of his hat-based singles. Um, to avoid any upset, this is not a fact, it's just an opinion no worries Steve uh, Anthony Faulkner said I heard it for the first time on the Peter Powell Radio 1 show at 5.45pm he had a show segment called 5.45s at 5.45 where he'd play and review upcoming releases Peter loved She's Got Claws and said it had real dance ability I like it too moody atmospheric and interesting lyrics I love the image and the sleeve 
Uh, Chris Howes said, when I first heard it without seeing the image that went with it, I thought, what the fuck uh, has he done now after retiring that year too? I love the Pleasure Principle and Telecon and the Living Ornaments box set. Uh, and so when this came along, it was difficult to take to, but after a while, I got to like it, and especially the Khan bass. Still like it now, but only uh, side one of dance. And on Twitter, um, Mark said, uh, so disappointed until I discovered Exhibition on the B-side, one of his best, I love it. I remember the Top of the Pops airing of the video and it being cut very short. I never ne- never warmed to She Got Claws like I have to this wreckage. Uh, John Elliott said, I was a bit shocked when I bought the single, mainly because of the sax and the general funkiness of the song in general. Um, I just wasn't expecting it after Telecom, but perhaps I should have expected it because of Wembley. Uh, I love Exhibition, hated Icing Rain. <laughs> At Crinoid said, I can remember going round town with my mum finding, trying to find the single and no one had it. I was 10 at the time and we did eventually find it in the co-op. A while later, I got the dance album, which is the finest album ever to have been made in the history of recorded music. That's quite the statement, but we'll definitely go along with it. And a couple of emails as well. John Garland sent a great email. Uh, I remember the release of She Got Claws being eagerly anticipated as everything was a bit uncertain after Gary retired from live performance at Wembley in April 81. On the day of the single's release later that summer, I caught the bus from my little village in South Norfolk to Norwich in order to get hold of it. I went to the first record shop I could find, found the 12-inch and excitedly took it to the counter, only for the person who served me to say, oh, I thought he'd given up. Is he still releasing music then? And there was the impact of the misunderstandings surrounding Gary's live retirement summed up in a nutshell. Impact as he's admitted that seriously damaged his career. Anyway, I was really intrigued by how She's Got Claws sounded at the time and loved the sleeve, but preferred its B-sides, even Icing Rain, um, and especially Exhibition, uh, which seemed to be the musical bridge between Telecon and dance. Magical. Thank you, John. And another email from Paul Denman. I remember being particularly excited by the release of She's Got Claws as it came after a period of uncertainty for this 12-year-old at the time, Newman fan. I've been a fan of Bombers and uh, when the farewell gigs happened, I was absolutely gutted. Being so young, I had very limited ways to communicate with other Newman fans, so I didn't know what was going on. So to see Claws released, well, to say I was relieved was an understatement. I loved the image. It was typical Newman in my opinion, eccentric, different, bold. I love the video. To this day, I'm a big lover of cats and so the Panther scenes uh, were a big tick and I love the fact that I could finally buy a 12 inch single with an additional new track on it for me the live bonus track on the 12 inch complex didn't count uh, I also love the hat I <laughs> bought one and wore it on my first day at my new upper high school at the age of 13 bit of a mistake but hey that came of being a Newman fan right uh, very much right Paul so thank you very much for all your comments everyone that was great and that was it for this episode of Electric Friends you can hear more about the dance era of Gary in the previous episode all about the song's stories and uh, please get in touch like those guys did in all the usual places you can email me at newmanpodcast at gmail.com that's newmanpodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at newmanpodcast and then you can also download all previous episodes and subscribe please do at newmanpodcast.com let me know if there's any particular songs you'd like me to cover and uh, please please rate and review the podcast if you can it makes a huge difference Uh, and by the time the next one comes out he will have played his electric ballroom shows so maybe i will see some of you down there Uh, if you spot me please say hello so for now thanks for listening as ever and i'll see you soon
Electric Friends, a Gary Newman podcast celebrating the tracks by a musical pioneer. pioneer.